miss the show, no worries. We've got you covered on point and on the show. Joe Biden's ready to kick Canada in the chops, killing the XL pipeline. What will the prime minister do? Probably cheer silently. Vladimir Putin's biggest rival back on Russian soil and now behind bars. Why is he such a threat to the Russian president? And does he face poisoning again? And where is Aaron O'Toole? I mean, he puts a statement out over the weekend telling us who he is. But there's a lot to criticize right now. And he's kind of missing in action. Let's get talking. If a precedent is created where a U.S. administration can retroactively veto a pipeline that already exists, it crosses the border already, then I truly believe we are facing a much bigger challenge that could cost us billions and tens of billions more in the future. So Sleepy Joe's better than tyrant Trump when it comes to Canada? Well, I guess it depends on if anyone actually cares about Canadian interests. Alex Pearson with you on this Monday, January 18th, which I'm told is the saddest day of the year. Yes, they call it Blue Monday. Blue Monday. Why today? Well, because this is when everyone gets their credit card bills in the mail. But I think uh, these days, I don't think we need those bills because we've got COVID doing a great job all on its own. But at least, you know, we got a final couple of days of, of sunshine. Sunshine and blue skies makes the biggest difference. I swear to God, it just gave me a little bit of a bounce in the step. It was nice to... Uh, just go out and almost feel a little bit like spring might be coming at some point. And, and thankfully, January has been actually pretty kind. Pretty kind. Can't complain. But I did receive an ominous note late today from the principal, basically telling us don't count on the kids coming back February 10th. Not that it's a done deal. Just not that, uh, not, not to expect them, which I think, I think we already know that, right? We've got a very busy show here tonight, and um, obviously COVID takes up all the oxygen in the room. And I know you guys are sick of it. We're sick of it. I'm sick of it. The problem and the challenge is it dominates kind of every aspect of our lives. It's very, very hard to escape it, which means a lot of the really important stories get sidelined, and, and they shouldn't. But we certainly won't tonight, because I think it's time that we ask ourselves, you know, what kind of country do we want Canada to be? Because we think we're pretty great. We talk about ourselves as we're pretty great. We ignore, though, the fact that we've become just a punching bag for the world. You know, we've become a country that's okay with being substandard. That's uninterested in being anything other than nice. We're not innovative. We're not competitive. We've just allowed ourselves to become very reliant on others to fulfill our needs. Be it, you know, in the vaccine, pharma production, defense, and, of course, energy production even though we've got more oil than we know what to do with. We prefer that everyone else do the things that we used to lead in, and now we limp. And no one should be shocked that Biden is set to kill Keystone XL. But he sure should be called out for it. Because it's a big, you know, up yours to an ally with not even a conversation. I mean, he campaigned on it, so it's not like we weren't warned. 
And certainly he has to, you know, please the extreme left of his party, which want this new Green Deal that he said he wasn't going to be involved in. But, you know, the second uh, Bernie Sanders found out about Keystone XL, he said, oh, delighted with the situation, which I think should tell us everything we need to know. You know, those thinking Trump was so awful for his treatment of Canada. Well, you know, now we know that Biden clearly doesn't care if he kicks Canada as well. I mean, he's made this his first action as president. And he can because we prove time and time again that, yeah, it's okay to treat Canada like crap. And certainly there are plenty in this country who will be all too happy to see Canada treated like crap and this pipeline canceled. That would include the opposition, who were both the Green and the NDP out today, gleeful about this. Gleeful. They don't care if 40,000 jobs are lost. And Trudeau has always said he supports Keystone XL. But you just know. You just know that he's silently cheerleading its demise because he's also made it very clear that he wants this green utopia. And with an election in the air, he can't. He won't further upside his climate base. And he's also made clear, very clear... That now is the chance that we must seize. So I guess Biden and Trudeau will seize this because they're working off the same green playbook, be damned the consequences to our economy and the opportunities lost to, you know, further landlocking our key resource. The thing that could pay for things like, oh, I don't know, paid sick days, uh, daycare, pharma, all these national big programs we want. Our key resource could pay for all of it and more. But, you know, the bottom line is this is going to kill jobs. It'll take $100 billion from our economy. And it's just one more nail in the coffin of our energy relevancy. And as Jason Kenney points out, it just makes no sense. Here's this very simple choice. Either the United States has access to environmentally responsible energy produced in a uh, close democratic ally uh, or it becomes more dependent on foreign oil imports from Venezuela and other OPEC dictatorships in the future. Yeah. I, I don't get it. We cancel Canadian oil, but we allow tyrant oil that uh, basically <laughs> they do nothing, have no environmental standards. And canceling Keystone will do nothing to help the environment. Nothing. This is just pure politics because Keystone XL is already well under construction. It went through endless environment assessments. And the company promised to spend $1.7 billion making sure that Keystone was the cleanest, greenest pipeline in, in the world. It wouldn't just benefit us. It would also partner with a number of First Nations groups who also want to reap the rewards of energy development in this country that we clearly can't get done. And, you know, we'll hear the standard talking points that we've, we've got to transition off of fossil fuels. Um, okay, that takes decades, all right? We can't be that stupid. It's not going to happen overnight. It takes decades. But we're stupidly allowing ourselves to lose out on all the benefits that Alberta oil revenues would bring to this country. You know, instead, no, we just, here, Venezuela, here, Saudi Arabia, we just buy up all their dirty oil. And we've been brainwashed you know, buying into this, you know, this thought that landlocking Canadian oil will save the planet, shrugging our shoulders to the real environmental offenders like Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, China. So, yeah, sure, Canadians will be happy to dump Trump, blaming his protectionism, among other things, for the woes. But, you know, at least he approved Keystone, which would benefit both our countries. 
But it also, I think, means Canadians didn't bother to listen to Sleepy Joe, who's every bit as protectionist as Trump. And he didn't even wait until day one to pick his first trade spat with us. And, you know, they control now both sides of the House. And they've got a very willing Trudeau government who look to be seizing the moment. And you know it, and I know it, but the left are going to work overtime to cram as much green policy through as they can with not a thought or care to the damage that it will do to everyday people that both Trudeau and Biden say they're fighting for. And the window of opportunity, as Kenny uh, points out today, it's going to shut. Now is the critical hour. We are at the 11th hour, and we need, if this really is a top priority, as it should be, then we need the government of Canada to stand up for Canadian workers, for Canadian jobs, for the Canada-U.S. relationship right now, today and tomorrow. Do not hold your breath. Because uh, Trudeau may have supported Keystone XL at one time, but he has not said as much as a word. All we've gotten so far is crickets. Nothing. Nada. Zero. Zilch. If a precedent is created where a U.S. administration can retroactively veto a pipeline that already exists, it crosses the border already, then I truly believe we are facing a much bigger challenge that could cost us billions and tens of billions more in the future. That's Alberta Premier Jason Kenney, and um, he's talking about Joe Biden, who's not even in the president's chair, and yet the first order of business for Biden is to kick Canada squarely in the chops in a move sure to uh, please the climate crowd, but will do absolutely nothing for the climate. It will, however, crush tens of thousands of jobs across this country. And look, by now you know that Joe Biden uh, has a to-do list. It's all for inauguration discs. And this list, apparently, you know, one of the first orders of, of business is an executive order to kill any further construction on the Keystone Pipeline. And this is a, a pipeline that Obama tried to stop and then Donald Trump gave the green light to. And it's well underway as far as uh, um, the construction of it. And the justification is that Canada's failed to convince the Biden team of the importance of fossil fuels, importing them to an ally. Well, give me a break. That's a bunch of BS. And so what does this mean? All right. Well, this is a pipeline that was to ship 830,000 barrels of diluted bitumen a day to be refined in the Gulf Coasts. And so, yes, there's going to be a huge loss of jobs. But further, uh, it's going to crush our resource industry while the U.S. just continues, um, you know, gaining steam in its energy uh, production. And it's also going to be about a $100 billion loss to our economy. So who is the big loser here? Well, again, without question, Canada. Stuart Muir is executive director of ResourceWorks. He knows an awful lot about what's going on in the oil patch, what's not going on. And um, Stuart, you're, uh, it's not like we can be surprised that Biden wanted to do this. He campaigned on it, but here we are, and it's his first order of business. But there are permits issued. Can he even do this? 
Yeah, there are questions around whether it's it's a legally possible move. You know, this thing has been through six scientific reviews by the U.S. Department of State over the last decade. It's been approved. It's deemed by them to be environmentally sustainable for the future. And to come in now and and just simply cancel it in this way, it might be seen as fulfilling a campaign promise. But is it legally possible? There are real questions about this. So we'll see in the days and weeks ahead. It's a real affront, not just to Albertans, though, but there were a number of Indigenous groups that wanted to be and were part of this project because they're anxious to get in on energy production um, to help lift their own communities out of poverty. So it's a blow to them should it not proceed as well. Yeah, this project is being done in all the right ways for 2021. It also employs 7,000 unionized American workers, and they will lose out. And you would have thought, isn't that part of that the Democrat base? But apparently it's not a part that, that matters to this administration, or at least that's what this pronouncement would seem to suggest. And so what was the reaction um, in, in Alberta um, to this news? Well, in a way, it's not that surprising because, as you say, they have been talking about this for some time and would they do it or not? And now we apparently know the answer. The reaction is disappointment. It's frustration. Um, you know, they've they've done everything correctly. This is about a partnership between two countries, um, Canada-U.S. trade relationship on energy. It's, it's um, you know, these are the largest energy trading partners, uh, $120 billion a year uh, relationship. It's heavily integrated. We've got cross-border pipelines and transmission all over the place. You know, even on the U.S. side, we're hearing from a number of United States up on the border and Alaska, too, who want the mm. new administration to be more strategic about long-term security for North America. But this decision does not recognize that. No, it doesn't. And I don't know how much wiggle room there is. I mean, this is a pipeline that Justin Trudeau said he supported earlier on, but we also know that he is uh, fully into seizing this moment. And I think he and probably the Biden administration see a great opportunity to fulfill their green um, ambitions while further landlocking Alberta oil. Um, so I don't see it being changed, but it also threatens other pipelines. I mean, there is a vital line, there's line three, but there's a, a vital line that goes through Michigan that, you know, if that thing actually gets shut down, that is a massive blow uh, to Ontario. So there are repercussions of, of where we're going here. Oh, very, very much so. And you talk about those three other pipeline projects that are very important to Canada. All of them, including Trans Mountain Pipeline to the Pacific Coast, all of them are being opposed and it's funny, you sometimes hear uh, people who are opposing KXL say, oh, don't worry, you've got those three other pipelines. And it's, well, wait a minute, you're also opposing those three other pipelines. So how can you tell us uh, it's okay? And it's not okay, because um, without KXL as a country, as an energy producer, Canada's back will mm -hmm. be to the wall. We will lose our margin of comfort. And that's what KXL yeah. will give us. And, you know, it's it's also, you know, to, to cast this decision as being in any way a green or clean one is actually fundamentally erroneous because it is a successful Canadian energy sector that will continue to lead the green transition to decarbonize the oil sands, which is happening. It is real. Developing hydrogen as an alternative. Impoverishing Alberta will not accomplish that. So if you think this is good for the environment, it's not. It's the opposite. And and also, it's it, it, it will still mean that heavy oil is imported to the U.S. because they've got billions of dollars of refineries to process heavy, heavy oil. They can't use alternatives. So where are they going to get that heavy oil from? If not Canada, well, they'll get it from somewhere else. 
maybe Venezuela or maybe mm-hmm. uh, other uh, Saudi Arabia, OPEC countries. Are, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, and people will argue, you know, well, um, you know, Saudi oil is not dirty like Canadian oil, and I, I would say uh, bitumens gets a gets an unfair rap. It takes more to produce it uh, and separate it. But when it comes to ethically oil produced in Canada, and this is the argument I make, we are one of the only countries that actually purges and then regrows. So if we've taken it from the ground, at least we are responsible and replenish the growth. They don't do that in Venezuela. They don't do that in Saudi Arabia. And what confuses me and just, uh, you know, kind of makes you shake your head is that we continually buy from regimes that have no ethics when it comes to the environment. They certainly don't have any human rights um, you know, ethics, uh, let alone um, kindness. And yet we, we insist on buying their oil when what we could do in this country with our own is it would pay for everything. Yes. And, and we're rubbing ourselves by thinking that this is a, a good decision, anyone who does, because the, the thing that the pipeline will accomplish is full value back to Canadians, the resource owners in Alberta who and, and all Canadians who share in that. I mean, there are people in small towns all around Ontario and Quebec who manufacture parts for the oil sands and send them off, and people go home back and forth. We know all, we know all this. But by discounting our, our oil, which is what's going to happen now even more so, we are letting someone else take the profit on it rather than us. That's not sustainability. If people are saying this is about sustainability, it's, it's not. It's about, it's about uh, self-impoverishment for no good reason. And and uh, Trudeau has yet to say anything. He's not uttered a word about this decision. I certainly hope he's working the phones uh, in the in the background. Albeit, I'm not all that confident he is. But without Keystone, um, and we know that uh, you know the East uh, Pipeline uh, was is not a go. But then we've got the Trans Mountain um, that we've spent billions of dollars. What the hell's going on with that? Yeah, exactly. I mean, they, they've gone a little quieter now because of COVID, and that may, one assumes, affect the timeline to get it complete in two years. Um, as, as far as what's going on in Ottawa, I think the, the Minister for Natural Resources, Seamus O'Regan, has been talking about uh, his concerns on it. I'm told that uh, quietly, they're not looking for a lot of attention to these efforts, but quietly there is uh, a lot of diplomacy happening that may or may not have an impact. Um, but uh, as, as for a uh, uh, a headline on this and, and making a large statement. We haven't seen too much yet from Canada, but it's very much in our interest. We're losing billions of dollars every year by not having things like Keystone Pipeline. And, and so it, it really is a, uh, a small national tragedy, but a large tra- personal tragedy for the thousands of workers who will lose their jobs. Yeah, no one seems to care about those people uh, too much. I mean, I think that's pretty obvious because all you'll ever hear back is, well, we do have to transition. And and I don't think people actually who say that have an understanding that to transition out of fossil fuels, we can all look to that as the goal, but it's going to take decades. And and so there's a way to get off oil, um, reap all the rewards of using it. Um, but unless everyone wants to go out in the dark and live in a yurt as of like now, which they're free to do, we're going to be using and needing fossil fuels for some time. And I would prefer to use Canadian uh, products so that we can, you know, like I said, build schools, hospitals, get Medicare, Pharmacare, all these things that we want. We just don't have the money to pay for. Yeah. And, you know, one thing I found in my travels and visiting uh, the oil sands and talking to people is, is that what we've got there, I liken it to a factory. The oil sands are like an energy factory because they're located in one place. We know that for decades that one place will produce oil, whereas 
pretty much everywhere else in the world, oil is about going and drilling new wells all the time, frenetically looking for that next play, whereas Mm -hmm. we can refine our processes. If you own a factory, you're always improving your equipment, you're getting your Mm -hmm. processes better and faster and cheaper and everything. That's exactly what's happening in northern Alberta, and that's why we're reducing emissions pretty quickly. It's a pretty good record, and uh, if we want to continue with that, we need to be able to get the proper value because that's how you are able to invest back into having a better factory. Well, we'll stay uh, stay tuned and hopefully uh, Sleepy Joe uh, wakes up and uh, has a, a rethink on this one, but uh, fingers crossed. Stuart, appreciate your time on this. Thank you. That is Stuart Muir joining us and he is the uh, executive director over at Resource Work. So we will wait and we will see because the Prime Minister did say he supported this project. Let's see if he puts his money where his mouth is. All right, good to have you here on this Monday. And he uh, couldn't be taken out by a nerve agent. So now Vladimir Putin's harshest critics been tossed in jail. And uh, not sure if you heard the story over the weekend, but Alexei Navalny touched down in Russia for the first time since being poisoned with a nerve agent last year that he insists the Kremlin is behind. He was poisoned by a nerve agent he says was put into his tea while he was in Siberia, and then it kicked in when he was on board this flight to Moscow, and then he got taken to Germany for treatment that he barely survived. So this guy should be dead, but he did survive. And now he is, as you know, when he got into Russia, as soon as he returned, he was taken behind uh, bars, but he knew it was going to happen and says he's not afraid. But certainly his arrest has uh, prompted a lot of condemnations from uh, Western nations, including Canada, calling for his release. Marcus Kolga is a senior fellow with the McDonald Laurier Institute, also an expert in Russia and Chinese issues. Good to have you, Marcus. Thanks for having me on, Alex. All right. So just uh, a lot of people don't know who this guy is. I mean, he's an anti-corruption campaigner. I mean, he, he is, I think, is it fair to say the most kind of prominent face of opposition for, for Vladimir Putin? Yeah, for sure. Over the years, I mean, he's been fighting against Russian corruption and for democracy probably for the past decade. Um, what makes him different is that he's survived among the other critics. Um, you know, there's been a string of, uh, of assassinations and murders going back to 2006 with, uh, with critics of Vladimir Putin, including journalists. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Boris Nemtsov being the most prominent, gunned down in 2015 in front of the Kremlin. Uh, Vladimir Karamurza poisoned twice, uh, uh, both times within a hair of his life. And, and Navalny is sort of the, the latest case. And as you mentioned, in August, um, uh, it wasn't tea, in fact, that they poisoned, but it was, uh, it was actually Novichok, a, a very rare nerve agent, that it turns out was placed on his underwear in the inside wow. seam of his underpants. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's a, a weird way to try and kill someone. Uh, but this was discovered uh, back in uh, in December with a joint CNN investigation with a with an outfit called Bellingcat, and uh, Navalny was even able to get one of the agents. He was able to dupe them from Germany um, over the phone to admit to uh, participating in the in the assassination. So, uh, you know, Navalny couldn't be uh, kept back, and he's he's now back in in Russia and. Uh, you know, I'm, I fear for his life right now. I mean, it's, it's incredibly brave of him to have, uh, have returned. I mean, why would he return? I mean, I'm, the only thing, the first thing that I came to mind was yeah. that his cheese sandwich will likely be laced with something else. Well, look, this guy has spent uh, the past decade uh, fighting against corruption for democracy. He's dedicated his life to this. 
Um, and, and Vladimir Putin would like nothing more than for him to stay abroad. Um, you know, if or die. Want, or die. I mean, that was the, you know, that's what they were originally hoping for. Um, but the hope was that he would stay in, in Berlin and just, just not come back. Um, but like I said, this guy's being uh, he's dedicated his entire life to fighting this system. And so doing it from Germany, the U.S., anywhere else, he'd be completely ineffective at it. So, um, you know, he made that decision to uh, to, to go back with his wife. Uh, you know, it was I mean, just watching the images from last night in Moscow, mm-hmm. they, they gave, he gave his wife a kiss. He knew what he was into going into. And now he's uh, he's now being sentenced to 30 more days in prison. Who knows what will happen during those 30 days and what will happen afterwards. But uh, brave decision. And, uh, you know, it seems like he's going to try and continue on the fight. Well, he, there's a lot to admire about this guy. Yeah. Um, and, and he clearly is willing to um, go all the way uh, for what he believes in. I mean, he did attempt also to, you know, run in the presidential race uh, in 2018 and then got barred because of um, an embezzlement conviction that he, he again, blames the Kremlin for. Yeah. Um, and so does he then, is he willing to go out and become a symbolic loss just to raise awareness? Or do you actually ever see him uh, becoming not just a threat to, to Vladimir Putin, but by actually seizing power from him? Because he's got millions of followers. I mean, this guy is not oh, yeah. some schlump. He has millions yeah, yeah. Of, of supporters. Yeah, right. No, just going back to your initial point about uh, the embezzlement charges, these are charges that were the European Court of Human Rights heard and completely dismissed. They said that these are politically trumped up charges. They're BS. They're not based on any sort of facts. Uh, and so, so, you know, the world understands that that's, that's what it was. The other remarkable thing about his arrest yesterday was that um, it was for a parole violation of those charges. Yeah. So because he was in Germany recuperating, after Putin actually signed off on uh, letting him go there. Um, now they've they've charged him for essentially staying alive. Um, uh, but to your question about you know the, the his supporters, yeah, he's got millions of supporters. Youth in Russia are looking to him as a possible savior. They're looking westward and they're asking themselves and they're starting to ask the authorities, why can't we have a life that the people in in Europe are having or in the in North America? And the authorities are unable to answer that because they continue to engage in corruption. They continue to uh, stifle free speech. And, and so these youth are looking to Alexei Navalny. And so the real problem for Putin right now is what do you do with this guy? If you let him go, he goes out and he starts to lead all of these people. And he's already called for protests this weekend, mm-hmm. which I suspect will be massive. If he mm-hmm. decides to do away with, with Navalny in prison, then he makes a martyr out of him. So it's, it's a tough situation that Putin's in. Um, but, uh, you know, I think things are looking up, essentially, for, for those who support democracy in, in, in Russia in, in that Navalny has returned. Well, maybe he can come over here and teach uh, folks here about censorship and all the things that are going on here that we seem to kind of cast a blind eye to, and it's happening right under our nose. But, you know, um, this has been condemned yeah. by Western leaders. But again, you know, so what that Justin Trudeau condemns it? So what yeah. that Joe Biden condemns it? I mean, we have proved time and time again with China that we will not call for Magnitsky, um, you know, yeah. uh, actions or, or anything. Uh, you know, so these, these, these world thugs get away with it. And they know yeah. they can. Yeah, no, you're, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, how many, I mean, I've spent years 
supporting Russian opposition leaders like Alexei Navalny. You know, I, mm-hmm. I spent years leading the, the campaign to have Canada adopt the Magnitsky legislation. And it's yeah. really tragic to see this government not use this legislation, which is intended to protect people, these brave, brave souls who are fighting for our values that we share, democracy, human rights, yeah. anti-corruption. Those sanctions are there to protect people like him. And Navalny has, in fact, uh, just today, he's, uh, his team has published a list of about 10 names that he's asking Western governments uh, to add to their sanctions list. So we have, you know, the UK, we've got the EU, we've got the US, who also have these uh, Magnitsky sanctions. We need to talk to them. This government needs to talk to them right away and at least, you know, add a couple of those names to our list to show that we mean business. Because if we don't, we're, this, you know, doormat foreign policy that we've had for the past year or two um, is really going to fail the people that people like Alexei Navalny. Yeah, it's uh, fascinating and fascinating to see what happens. I certainly hope uh, he, he uh, lives to tell another tale. But, yeah, it's just a fascinating story. Uh, Marcus, thanks for your insights into this. I appreciate it. Anytime, Alex. Thanks for having me on. All right. Good to have you here with us on this Monday. And, you know, the rumors of an election coming are fast and furious with a lot of people asking, you know, who is Aaron O'Toole? I mean, he's been in politics for a long time, but a lot of people just don't know him as this new conservative leader. And that's why right now, of course, the liberals are doing their damnedest to portray, you know, portray him as Trump light or alt-right or someone who panders to the extreme right. I mean, it's the oldest trick in the liberal playbook, but it is very effective, and they're very good at that. So over the weekend, O'Toole released a statement trying to clarify who he is and what he represents, making clear that there is no place for the far right in the party, and that he's in building this new, more inclusive and moderate conservative party, a strategy I guess they see as widening the base, but it does risk alienating Parts of it. I want to bring in Samar Takes to this conversation with Enterprise Canada, as where she is, and I can't speak today. I'm sorry, Enterprise Canada, where she's a senior public affairs consultant. Good to have you. Thanks for having me, Alex. All right, let's start with um, you know Aaron O'Toole getting to know people, and then I got a couple of other things I'll ask you about. But I mean, where is he? There's so much right now that he could be doing that would be more effective in my mind than putting out statements of who he is. I mean, there's lots to criticize with the Trudeau government. But he really hasn't been seen since the Christmas holidays. Yeah, look, I mean, I'll say this to start. Um, It's generally quite difficult for opposition parties to break through um, the attention that surrounds the governing party. Right. And in in a a sort of pandemic context and a lockdown, it's that much more difficult because Mm -hmm. Aaron O'Toole can't meet people in person. He can't knock on doors. He can't have rallies. He can't have sort of the traditional events that would allow the public to get to know him better. So he, I understand, is doing sort of the what everyone else is doing, right? He's, he's jumping in on Zoom calls, having, uh, I know he's making one-on-one calls to party members and, and people who are interested in talking to him, but it's tough. The Liberals have, you know, the power of the public service. They've got the spending power of the government. They've got all of the attention of the public because the public's interested in pandemic and pandemic response, right? So um, it, it's, a, it's a challenge for sure. But Aaron O'Toole's message this weekend wasn't a new one, right? You'll, rec- you'll mm-hmm. recall, Alex, that on Election Day, when he won the leadership of the Conservative Party, Aaron laid out his vision for the Conservative Party going forward and sort of a continuation on what it was. But it really focused around this new vision, this positive, inclusive 
vision for the Conservative Party. Um, and it's one that he is going to need to sell to Canadians more widely um, if he's going to win, uh, if he's going to have a shot at winning the next election. Right, because he's he's easy to, you know, label and the liberals are very, very good at it or they wouldn't do it. This is what they've been doing for years and years. And it does tend to work. And so you've got to be smarter and get out and define yourself before you're defined by your competition. Um, but it's interesting, you know, a lot of the language we're hearing from from Aaron O'Toole's team is a lot of the same language that we heard from Patrick Brown when he was trying to widen the base where everyone has a home here. You know, this is an inclusive party. This is a big party, um, a big tent party. The problem or the, the risk that Aaron O'Toole has is that, you know, he can widen the base and sure he should. I mean, it's ridiculous to suggest that all conservatives are white alt-right, whatever, neo-Nazis. I mean, there is a lot of ethnicity within the party itself and a lot of people who think way beyond things like abortion um, and, and all the other things that get thrown at them. But it does sound like they're trying to craft kind of a narrative that Patrick Brown uh, tried to use. Well, I think, I think the narrative they're really trying to craft is the conservative voter, voter isn't a monolith, right? The conservative mm -hmm. voter has various interests, and but fundamentally they believe in the same principle of smaller government, uh, you know, responsible use of taxpayer funds and so on and so forth. So it's, it's really selling this existing um, uh, makeup profiles of the different conservatives that exist within the party. And it's sort of shedding this image that's been, you know, very carefully um, crafted by the liberals that the conservative voter is this middle aged white man who uh, you know, whose sole interest is uh, bringing back abortion issues and issues that, you know, most people in Canada have sort of moved on from. And even social conservatives within the Conservative Party are not yeah. just concerned with social issues. They're, they're concerned with the economy. They're, they want to talk about jobs. They want a smaller government. They want responsible uh, spending of, of, of fiscal dollars. Yeah. They want basic respect is what, is what voters yeah. want. They want to be heard. And I think a large swath of voters don't feel like they're being heard. And so they're desperate to look for someone who will actually understand uh, their needs. But, you know, the problem, again, other risks for, for Aaron O'Toole, that um, no other party would really get held to the same kind of uh, account in the prime minister himself, who's had some questionable dealings on fundraising issues, is now this story with Derek Sloan possibly taking this donation from uh, Paul Fromm, who is a, a well-known, um, um, you know, nationalist, uh, someone who, uh, you know, is is said to be an, a neo-Nazi part of that whole movement. Um, and, and if it's true, there's just no way that Aaron O'Toole can keep that in his party if he thinks he's going to divorce himself from what he's telling people, which is um, that he has no tolerance for this kind of thing. And, and Derek Sloan, I get it. He's a politician. He'll get approached from all sorts of people. But it do, Aaron O'Toole wears it. Absolutely. Aaron O'Toole wears it. And he wears it in a way that other political, like if this had happened in another political party, they wouldn't. So what does yeah. Aaron O'Toole yeah. do? Um, and I think, look, frankly, there is a there is a process, uh, you know, uh, triggered by the Reform Act that requires 26 signatures from caucus to request an emergency meeting so that um, they can reevaluate uh, Mr. Sloan's membership in the Conservative Party. This comes on the heels of Aaron mm -hmm. O'Toole's statement, really laying out that the party is open to all Canadians, essentially. And so 
surely the conserv- we, there will be at least 26 members of the Conservative caucus uh, who will be amenable to, amenable to tr- uh, triggering a meeting to discuss Mr. Sloan's, Mr. Sloan's uh, membership in the party. And I want to be clear, this has this is not about Mr. Sloan's sort of, you know, social conservative leanings. This is about yeah. Mr. Sloan accepting funds from someone who uh, is a member of a hate group, right? And that should have has no place in the Conservative Party. And I really hope Conservative members of caucus uh, take this opportunity to make that very clear, not only to Conservative voters, but to all Canadians, that that will not be tolerated by the caucus. Well, well, I think it's long overdue because, you know, n- n- any conservative I know is not at all associated with that kind of garbage. And when you smear a whole, um, you know, voter base by the actions of a few, it is not fair and it's not accurate. Um, and so you're right. I think you should have moved on that uh, probably a long time ago. But then the the risk is Derek Sloan will take a particular vote away from Aaron O'Toole that he might very well need. Well, I don't know. I think that social conservatives also find this kind of behavior abhorrent, right? Social conservatives mm. aren't aren't voters that tolerate uh, hate and hateful. Uh, yeah, they get easily vilified, and I think unfairly. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So, so I don't think that uh, I don't think that cons- that social conservative voters in the Conservative Party will particularly take offense to this, whereas they take offense as being vilified because of their uh, because of their social conservative beliefs. Just quickly before I let you go, I'll put you on the spot just a little bit, because I'm sure behind the scenes they are busy crafting a, a platform just to get it ready. What would you recommend if you're advising uh, Mr. O'Toole to put in the platform that will have wide appeal to younger people and, and widen his base? Well, first, I'd say this. I'd say the first step in anything Mr. O'Toole is going to do leading up to the election will be sending a very clear message with a very targeted response to uh, to this issue with Mr. Sloan and specifically the acceptance of of, uh, of the funds from this uh, member of a neo-Nazi group. And then he's got to find a way to appeal to voters in the 905 um, and, you know, suburban, urban, millennials, people who are worried about their jobs post-pandemic, people who are worried about the savings they had put aside that are now using to survive, what is the plan to reboot the economy? How can we ensure that urbanites and suburbanites can actually afford a home in this area, something I'm struggling with? Um, so it, it's really a matter of reaching out to the people um, in the 905 where the votes will matter most and being able to reach out to, you know, like I said, urban, suburban um, and, and, and female voters in this area. Well, it's a tough road ahead, but no question about it, whether they admit it or not. We all know that we're in election mode already, and uh, it's going to be an ugly one. Always appreciate your insight into this. Thank you. Thank you. You can join us, of course, live Monday through Friday, 630 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on Point. This is Global News Radio.